Hello and welcome to Before You Go. I'm Bryant Monte. And I'm Nicole Franklin. And Bryant, it's always a good day when we have our veterans' best interests in mind. Oh yes, always. And we often overlook our military men and women who have served our country. So with us today is Caldwell Williams. He's a mental health educator. And, sir, I'd like to hear about the specialty you've been working in all these years. I graduated UCLA in 1957 with a degree in business administration. Corporate recruiters were given space on campus to set up their recruitment booths. And I discovered no Jews, no Negroes, no Hispanics, no Orientals may be interviewed for Corporate America in 1957. I, who had been born on a farm in East Texas and come to, we came to Los Angeles in 1943 in the middle of the war as a fifth grader without guidance. All four of my grandparents were born slaves. My parents were first generation free. I was born to middle-aged people. My dad was 52 and my mother was 40 when I was born. Wow. And so without guidance, uh, I kind of followed the path of a couple of my Jewish friends. We had just moved west of Crenshaw in 1949. Mm-hmm. Flying buttermilk, do you know that expression? No, I don't. What does it mean? <laughs> oh. You said flying buttermilk? A fly in buttermilk. Oh, flying buttermilk. A little yeah. conspicuous black spot in the midst of white. Ah, oh, yeah. <laughs> makes <Right>. sense. <laughs> uh, Trying to survive. <laughs> that, was the, that was the experience of our family in 1949 when we moved west of Crenshaw. My brother and I were the 43rd and 44th colored students at Dorsey High School in 1949. Mm-hmm. And I pretty quickly established a friendship with a couple of Jewish boys in my neighborhood. And they'd been programmed for a business administration degree from birth. So I just followed along. I was, I was bright. I did a lot of things at Dorsey High School, you know, debate, uh, mm-hmm. journalism, pole vaulted, uh, played basketball. And, uh, good enough grades to get into UCLA. So that's what I did mm-hmm. and got a degree. And essentially they said, didn't anybody tell you there were no Negroes in corporate America? Mm-hmm. So I, I had a dilemma. I had met a spectacular girl, actually went an extra semester to get a proper introduction to this girl. <laughs> Dedication. It's, it's a great romantic story. Our marriage lasted 61 years. She died uh, in, in 2020. Um, oh, wow. But I had this romance going and no job prospects. And now what? Now I didn't know who I was. I, mm-hmm. I just, mm-hmm. Now I have to be resourceful and find out something to do because I certainly am not going to propose to marry someone without a, when I had no job. Right. <laughs> uh, she, was, she graduated in the same class and went on to teach in elementary school. Mm-hmm. But 1957 was Sputnik year. Remember the Soviet Union put up a satellite called Sputnik? Yeah. I can tell you at age 88. That's how old you are now. That that (laughs) is my present age. That the panic about COVID does not approach the panic in the United States when the Soviet Union put a satellite up and we didn't know how to do that. We were Mm -hmm. terrified they were going to put a nuclear weapon in their satellite and we'd be doomed. Hmm. And so part of the panic, Congress threw money in a pot and said, we need math and science teachers. We got to catch up with the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. 
and therein uh, I discovered my brain works to see opportunity in whatever the circumstances are. Nice. We need math and science teachers. Mm -hmm. As a business major, I had an, a minor in economics and I had a lot of math. And so I sent my transcript to Sacramento saying, here's my transcript. What do I need in order to get a general secondary teaching credential so I can teach mathematics? Mm -hmm. And they allowed me to bypass UCLA's education bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. And I got a teaching credential. I went for my interview on the day that I was interviewed. Uh, Dale Carpenter was a supervisor of mathematics for the district and did the interviewing. They interviewed us in alphabetical order and there was a Japanese boy, uh, Ted Kubota, mm -hmm. who was ahead of me. We both grad gone undergraduate work at, UC at UCLA, so we had chatted. Uh, he came out and he said, it's real simple, Caldwell. Uh, he'll give you a list of three schools, one of whom must hire you. Hmm. And then uh, when I went in, Dale Carpenter handed me a list of three schools. They were all junior high schools. Now, what math is taught in junior high schools? Arithmetic and ninth graders can begin algebra. Algebra, math. yeah. So I said, what about high school? Uh, Dale said, young man, I'll be candid with you. Uh, I've given you a list of schools where you could work in the, in the Los Angeles School District. To summarize the meaning of that, a 25-year-old Black man can only teach boys PE in a senior high school. We will not put you in a senior high school. You can only teach in a junior high school. Hmm. This was 1959. Mm -hmm. I needed a job, so I said yes. My first job was at Audubon Junior High School in Lambert Park. 100 KBLA is. <laughs> Yes, 100, in 1959, 100% white. Wow. <laughs> they had two black girls, very light-skinned black girls who were on the faculty, and I was the first black man. My first teaching assignment, five classes of ninth grade arithmetic for kids who had flunked arithmetic since third grade. I called them the wall climbers. Nice. <laughs> As I was passing out textbooks, a book fight ensued in my classroom, and although it was about a generation ahead before this phrase came into popular uses. But my attitude was, homie, don't play that. <laughs> you don't get to throw books in my classroom. Mm -mm. Uh, put the books in the closet. And what ensued was every night, there was a, in those days, a, a cheap duplicating process called spirit duplicating. You typed on a purple stencil and you ran it through clear alcohol to print. I was writing lesson plans and creating exercises for my class every night. I decided to teach them the principles behind the problems in the book, which they had rejected. Don't you know who we are, Mr. Williams? We're the dummies. What are you giving us? And I insisted that they learn the language as well as the exercise and started a piece of my curriculum that still is my introduction to my curriculum trainings today. It is as follows. I'm introducing you to irrefutable empirical truth that no one can deny. The average newborn is 19 to 21 inches. Look at you now, you've grown, so don't tell me you can't grow. No infant speaks a language. You understand everything that I'm saying. You have mastered at a level of a ninth grader, maybe not as well as 
students in another classroom, but you can't tell me you can't learn because you've already learned. We have, mm -hmm. I have proof of that, so don't BS me. And you can create. And to the kid who said, no, what do you mean? Create, I said, what did you have for breakfast? Creativity in, in our application is, you take stuff that's already here because everything is already here yeah. and you remix it. <laughs> yeah, so you, you took some cereal out of a box and you took some milk out of <laughs> Anyway, you created your breakfast. From, <laughs> and where, and if, you, if we survey the people in this classroom, we'll find that there are you know, 15, 20 different models of breakfast creation. You, know, you didn't all do, it, do the same thing. So I won them over by December, which was a faculty Christmas party. Leon Kaplan, the Jewish principal, pulled me aside and said, I'm impressed with your relationship with kids. Hmm. As a 25-year-old, I didn't get it, but later I understood what he was I gave you all the dummies and these kids are behaving themselves. What are you doing in your classroom? I want you in the counseling office. Hmm. Well, first time in my um, emerging adult life being acknowledged, I would have climbed Mount Rushmore for him. <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. uh, hmm. If you're willing to uh, begin a uh, graduate program to work on your counseling credential, the school district allows me to put you in the counseling office half time while you're doing that. I want you in the counseling office. Nice. And that's sent me to Cal. I found a program at the brand new Cal State LA mm -hmm. where I could take the required courses at night after work. That's my beginning. What a beginning. They kind of put it in, in the context. The most compelling social need of human beings is to belong or Amen. to be included. And the quest for inclusion underlies the worldwide struggle of intractable problems. Communication is both the means and measure of inclusion. And, and there are two predominant ways in which we communicate to achieve those ends. We communicate through our achievement. Results speak louder than words. Whoever gets the needed job done is given a place in the group, no matter what your gender is or what your race is. So the, in my model, the first criterion is improve your achievement skills. Mm -hmm. So you get things done. We also communicate through dialogue. Change is and inevitable. And so you need a skill set to navigate change. And I'm asserting that when you assertively attack change with confidence, power, and dignity, you can turn impending disaster into opportunity. I like um, that. And so that's our, the, the heart of our curriculum. Achievement skills I've developed a roadmap that's diagnostic so you can see uh, where you are and get a notion of what you need to do to keep moving up. You started working with veterans in 2017. You're 88 now. So were you possibly retired from a different job before oh, you started? yes, yes. yes. <laughs> yeah. I told you about my five classes of ninth grade arithmetic. Yeah. I don't know if you recall your school experience, but the miscreants dominate the social culture on campuses and in, in, in schools. They're the loudest and the baddest. Yes. And <laughs> are secretly admired by the, by the nerds. Yeah. I had no idea, but these kids who, whom I won over in as ninth graders in that arithmetic class put out the word that this long leg skinny black guy was cool. <laughs> <laughs> 
with my mask. Remember, I went into the counseling office halftime. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the word had gotten out on the campus, and other kids wanted to have an experience with this guy. And in our school at Audubon Junior High at the time, the first level discipline, if you misbehave, was you got sent to the counseling office. The next level up was you're sent to the vice principal. So I was in the, in the counseling office halftime, and kids were lining up outside my office to talk to this cool black guy. I didn't know that at the time, but that's what was going on. So I didn't have time to see everybody who wanted to see me. So I said to my master's committee, three Jewish boys at Cal State LA, I think I want to do my thesis on group counseling because they all have the same lament. I put them together in groups. Everybody could spend some time with me. And, uh, and they said, you can't do that. I asked why. And they said, the protocols for the Greek program is we start with giving a reading list of all the experts in your field. And in 1960, group counseling, group therapy did not exist in conventional institutions in the United States or anywhere. Oh, wow. I spoke with Leon Kaplan, my principal, who supported me. And essentially, we said, I'll do it anyway. And, and that's what I said to my, my committee. Two of the three said, well, let the man do what he wants to do. And <laughs> kind of an attitude of what harm can that do? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I created my own approach. This was 1960. By the mid-60s, group therapy had exploded around the world. Oh, one other thing about the groups. With the principal's permission, I took a group of uh, seven seventh-grade boys who had been in all kinds of trouble. There's a concept still being uh, practiced by the LA Unified School District. They call it, I think they call it opportunities transfer. A kid is misbehaving in one uh, jurisdiction. Principals can exchange bodies. The philosophy or theory is change the environment. Maybe you can change the, the uh, life trajectory of the child. Doesn't work because by the first nutrition break, they found the, they found their misbehaving kids. In the they middle. found their tribe. Yes. <laughs> so I, I said mm-hmm. to, to Leon, let's see if we could break that. So I had, there were seven youngsters who had been, Leon had accepted at Audubon from other schools, all misbehaving youngsters. And I said, let me have them. I'll meet with them once a week different period each day, so they only miss class once every five, every five weeks. And give me a semester with them, no matter what happens, let me deal with it. All seven of them graduated on time. And Leon was not unable to find any such performance in, anywhere in the, in the LA Unified School District. So we were excited. We uh, tried to get Muriel Sheldon, who was a female who ran who's a supervisor of counseling in the district at all secondary, secondary schools. We wanted to uh, make some noise and make, the, make known what we had done. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's Audubon. That's a school in transition. Because mm-hmm. by this time, people of color had begun to crack <laughs> the very the park, ball and hills. Right. <laughs> Coming in. Moving and, in. <laughs> and, and so downtown considered that's a community in transition and what happened, what's happening there is not important. And I set my goal on uh, two things. When I was uh, halfway through my curriculum at UCLA, I was a junior at the time, 
had an epiphany sitting in a classroom. I realized I was surrounded by kids who, whose dad was teaching the class. My dad didn't look like that, didn't talk like that. And my epiphany was, I'm surrounded by kids who are acculturated at the breakfast table. I was a junior in college, and I realized that my first two years had been essentially mastering standard English because I had begun to enter the dialogue in my classes and my professor's response was kind of, who is this young Negro? Mm -hmm. And when I looked more closely, I realized that everybody who looked like me that they had experienced had been athletes <laughs> where the agreement was keep my boy eligible <laughs> so he can play on my <laughs> athletic team. Right. And here was Caldwell challenging the intellectual ideas under discussion. So I was an anomaly. And I said to this beautiful girl who turned out to be my bride for 61 years, if we're fortunate enough to have children, they'll grow up in Westwood. She said, how will we do that? She was from Pasadena. And in the 50s, you could go to school at UCLA, but you couldn't get a hotel room in, in Westwood. <laughs> oh, wow. I lived uh, in Westwood. I'm, not, I'm trying to imagine that. Well, it's terrible. Well, wow. Yes, 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 yes. And so I had this dual objective. I was making discoveries in the counseling arena that were cutting edge. And I had a child born in 1961. Mm. And Jeffrey was going to grow up in Westwood. Yeah. So I identified University High School in West LA. Mm -hmm. I posited, if I produce the same results I just produced at Audubon for kids at University High School, the six o'clock news in the Los Angeles Times would have a headline story. The families that they respond to, they didn't give a damn about these families in transition in Audubon. There is a contemporary slogan that kind of goes out i can't i won't get it right but it's something like thinking into existence mm -hmm. you know whatever that concept speak is speak it into existence speak, well. speak it in, mm -hmm. into existence i'm kind of fascinated now about quantum physics and, and there's a concept in there that, that there's some elements of truth in that whole notion that we won't talk about that here but <laughs> it kind of summarizes my life because my focus on university high school led me to a case conference meeting, a, a psychological case conference designed to try to share best practices in counseling kids and, mm -hmm. and families. The principal of the university high school was during the meeting. I walked into the meeting. He had been a math teacher at Dorsey High School when I was a student at Dorsey High School. Oh, oh Caldwell. world. <laughs> Caldwell. I didn't know you were going into education. I bit my lip so that I didn't... <laughs> insult him <laughs> because <laughs> I was just flying buttermilk at Dorsey High School and, and you didn't even know who I was. <laughs> right, okay. right. Uh, <laughs> and you were surprised that I, that I graduated from UCLA because uh -huh. you didn't get yeah. that. <laughs> anyway, I bit my lip and I, I didn't say that under a court order, civil rights uh, division. LA Unified School District had been ordered to end its practice segregation of faculty. And, and this was 19... 65. Okay. Mm -hmm. Just had the Watts riots. And, right, and, right. And so principals were ordered. Are, are they going to lose the federal funds? Stop your de facto segregation of 
faculty or, or you lose your funds. And Hugh Foley, the principal, needed a black face on his faculty <laughs> to comply with the civil rights. And I walked into a, a meeting and, and <laughs> that's what he saw. Oh, I see color for my faculty. Yeah. And I had my own agenda. So when I went for my interview I, and I applied for a transfer, which I, he obviously was going to grant, I went for my interview. He had a whole team to be certain there was no objection. He had head custodian, head chef in the, in the kitchen, the brain. I had a whole committee of people. <laughs> uh, and I told him my agenda. I told him about my group counseling experience and that had excited me and went right over their head. Boy, we're, you're here to, for color. <laughs> okay. But when I showed up and did what I did, they couldn't say I had, they hadn't been forewarned. In 1965, when I came to University High School as replacing a full-time counselor, mm -hmm. this first semester, our kids are very assertive. So this first semester, we're going to give you a smaller sample and rather than the uh, population that your predecessor had. They gave me all of the failing seniors. That was my first counseling group. Remember all these ninth grade failures? Here we're repeating the same philosophy. Let's give this black guy all these screw-ups and see, let's see if he handles that. They didn't know about my group process. I simply put my kids together in groups and immediately learned what was going on in that community. Mm -hmm. And it was very iconic families, kids were breaking ground in the beginning of the psychedelic drug using explosion. I'm sitting there listening to them talk about it. And I did what I had learned to do. I listened. And in the process, gained the admiration, respect of these kids, most of whom had psychiatrists. <laughs> okay. But they talked to me. Wow. And, and some of them bragged about going to their psychiatrist stoned and, and laughing because the, the strength didn't know about it. So anyway, <laughs> well, the strength administered the drugs. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so the, the, uh, to summarize here, I got a phone call from Marshall Seven, who was a Beverly Hills lawyer, who said, Caldwell, I just I formed a nonprofit California corporation. I hope you don't mind. I call it Dawn. The acronym had to have a, a meaning. So I call it Developing Adolescence Without Narcotics, Dawn. And I rounded up my friends. We'll pay the bills to support if you'd be willing to work with our kids off campus. Uh, here again, acknowledgement, right? Oh, mm -hmm. of course, I'll, I'll do that. So that was Dawn got national headlines as the first drug abuse rehabilitation prevention, whatever you want to call it, program in the United States. But it got headlines and we made Life magazine because they were kids of rich folk. Oh, wow. You devised your own program, you know, you, yes. you designed your own program. So um, you have left the school system, you're designing your own program. But before that, I wanted to ask, did you serve in the military at all? Yes. Mm -hmm. In my day, we were conscripted, we were drafted. And right after I graduated high school, Harry Truman went into Korea to fight the communists in Korea. Right. Korean War. I had a deferment because I was progressing well with my curricular experience at UCLA so that they had a rule that said, if you're progressing toward a degree, 
we will delay your, your conscription until you graduate. Hmm. And so that's what I did. I, so I had a deferment while I finished my, my degree. And after I graduated, a young man who had been a friend of mine at UCLA called me on the phone and said, Caldwell, there are two spots left in my unit. Get your ass down here. <laughs> uh, and I joined the uh, National Guard under a program that would send me for six months of, of uh, training. And then my obligation after the six months of training in a, in a particular job, uh, I would serve five and a half years in the reserve and be on call if they needed me. Wow. And that's the program uh, in which I enrolled. Three days later, I got a draft notice in the mail. So had I not enrolled, I would have done the conventional two years of military service. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I did six months of training and, and five and a half years of reserve training. And I didn't consider myself a veteran until I got involved helping veterans who were suicidal. And a group of, of Black Vietnam veterans in Inglewood said to me, get your butt to the VA. Mm -hmm. I'd been discharged. This was 2017. I'd been discharged in 1963. And uh, I had never gone to the VA for anything. Mm -hmm. But these guys whom I, who, who I was helping Help me. <laughs> Get your butt to the VA. You're a veteran. Right. I said, no, I only served six months. And they said, no, the, the rule is if you spend 24 hours on active duty, you are a veteran. So, wow. But then that also gave me access to things I didn't have access to, as I, even as I was helping veterans, because now I could work from the inside. So, so it's been both personally and professionally helpful to be to get on their roles. They had, by the way, when I went to them, they couldn't find me in their computer. They couldn't find any evidence that I had served. And so we ended up writing to the archives. I mean, if you're graduated, if you're discharged in 1963, and it's now 2018, <laughs> and we've never heard of you, we'd archive your, your files. Hmm. So It was on paper. <laughs> on paper, but they... They were able to find it in their archives, and, and uh, so I'm legitimately a, uh, a military veteran of the United States Army. Talking about veterans, what do you do to help them? Because I know they go through deeper struggles. Yes. The military is very organized, regimented, specific, and controlled. Its philosophy is you control through domination and intimidation, and you control through objectifying the other so that you're not killing a person, you're killing a terrorist mm. or a Nazi or a gook. Mm. Anybody who goes through the military might not use this language, but this is the essence of basic training, shifting your mental paradigm from seeing the enemy as a person, but seeing him as an object. And so unable to articulate that, but the military person adopts that model successfully. While in the military, dialogue skills are nowhere on the training agenda in the military model or culture. Right. Kid has a successful service in that model, comes out with confidence, I'm going to get on with my life, and finds not the ability to articulate it, but if you observe objectively, wholly deficient in the skill sets on which I uh, curriculum is based. Dialogue skills and achievement skills. Because he's the achievement is that he's experienced, 
has happened as a result of taking orders from somebody else who knows why we're doing it. <laughs> you just do what you're told. Right. Okay. Right. The civil rights movement ushered in and fought by Black folk, which inspired the women's movement, means evolution, although in terms of one lifetime, seems slow, but it's moving rapidly. This boy comes home, and I've had specifically in the language that I'll share with you, veterans say to me, I control my woman. And he finds when he comes out, she's grown. And it's like, uh-uh, let's do this jointly. And the same thing is true with children. And now the, the young man, deficient in dialogue skills, you know, men don't talk about any of this stuff. So his life is at a standstill. And he doesn't know how to navigate this modern society where women want to be treated as, as human beings. And so he, he does whatever he can think of at his level of sophistication to ease the pain. So it's substance abuse, family abuse, child abuse, spousal abuse, and the not knowing how to get out of that. Oh, what the hell? I People better than I died in Iraq. I'll just join my buddies. Hmm. And wow. what I just summarized for you is a preponderant story. And even a person like our friend Ferran, who whose trauma wasn't combat, but a cell, sickle cell in his body that forced him to separate from the service. Having that taken away, what's left isn't worth pursuing. So I'll just check out. Let me do a quick curricular summary. Step one, awakening to awareness that you have what you need in order to navigate. You just need to strengthen your, the skill set you already have. I started out this conversation with you guys pointing out one of those ninth graders all the way back in 1959. You have the ability to learn and to grow and to create. There's no mm -hmm. question about that. Next step, you need a model for understanding your mind. What is the mind? A linear, sequential, multi-sensory recording of experiences. Every experience your being has had is recorded. And I'm, when I say experiences, I mean all of it. Every cell dying and recreating and all the stuff that we can talk about. Where's the mind located? predominantly in the brain, but secondarily in every cell of the body. These experiences are recorded multi-sensory throughout the, the body. The body keeps the score, right? Ah. So whenever a contemporary event is at all similar to a tra trauma or threat that we have recorded in our body, the mind goes into action and pulls out all the traumas as if the one you're experiencing now is the greatest of them all, so that we respond appropriately to survive. The part of the definition is purpose of the mind is survival of the being or whomever the being considers itself to be. I was once doing a training, a corporate training, room full of very bright PhD men and one woman. And at the beginning of the training, she pulled me aside and said, Caldwell, do not call on me. I will die if I have to speak in front of these guys. She was a controller mm. of the company. And did not want to speak. And what I didn't say to her, but what I said to myself is, that's the one we're going to kill. Oh. <laughs> you know, the you that says, I'll die if I have to speak in front of all these guys. Her perception of herself needed some adjustment. And so before the training was over, I had her in front of the group. One died because yeah. what we discovered, which, and, and she got reinforced, the lawyers in the group make the most noise. But the, the CEO of the company, before taking a decision, would always turn to the controller and said, can we do this? <laughs> so she found us in her perception elevated in a way that she didn't realize. She thought she was just a little quiet person sitting in the corner being ignored. 
she had a lot of power. Uh, so survival of the being or whomever the being considers itself to be. And we who are descendants struggle to heal from the injuries afflicted thereby without being properly diagnosed and without being properly treated. We put too much of the emphasis on the other guy. Get your knee off my neck. Uh, okay, now your knee's off my neck. What do I do? Damned if I know. <laughs> I find another person to blame. <laughs> okay. And we are good at making up stories about who we are to hide as best we can our injuries, because it doesn't feel good to acknowledge that we're damaged. And in my model, and the people I respect, healing starts with telling the truth. If you tell the truth and I tell the truth, we can begin to have some dialogue. I can show you that solutions emerge from honest human interaction that's truthful. Now, Mr. Williams, I was wondering about your work with um, adults, because you did a lot with the yes. youth, which was amazing. And right. then how does that belonging, inclusiveness, you know, working together, uh, who does that help in the above 25 crowd? That's a good question. The spectacular, according to the family, success of Dawn in 1970 uh, the Los Angeles Friday School District gave me a charter to create a school in pursuit of my own philosophical approach to education okay. in a public school. And we did it within University High School. We call it a school within a school. Mm -hmm. I got a charter to implement my philosophy, education philosophy in a school. And we did that successfully for eight years, 1970 to 1978. So many people applied, 1,100 families showed up when we announced that we, were, we had this alternative school. So we did a lot of everything. My charter allowed me to, to begin with 150 students. We started out, picked the faculty, some bright guys. Their reputations were based upon families, kids, feedback. You know, who's a good English teacher? Who's a good science, et, et, et cetera. So we, we built a faculty of university, high school, people who were willing to experiment, innovate with me. Kids got excited about school. Some of the kids, who, families who put their uh, name in the lottery, screw ups. Mm -hmm. And some were just simply brilliant, bored kids. So we had a mixture. Word went out in the community, gossip in the community, and the question in the community, who is this black guy and what is he doing right. with our kids? <laughs> oh, he's the guy who ran the drug program, so he's probably giving them dope. Those were rumors that were going on in the community. One girl, 10th grade girl, 15-year-old, whose only brother, there were three ch children. She's the youngest. The brother was the middle Mm -hmm. committed suicide the week before school started oh, and, no. and she could not sleep or if she fell asleep she was having nightmares about a brother and my charter in my charter in my proposal i proposed innovative program and mm -hmm. then we ended up calling it innovative program school ips so i had charter to innovate first i found what i could about death and dying and a girl named kubler ross up at ucla in a book on this Stages of grief. We read that and we talked about that, and these nightmares continued. And nothing I could find in with conventional guidance changed that. So, oh, okay, call well, you have a charter to innovate. So I created a meditation exercise at the end of which I did a countdown, and the meditators died. And then we had a conversation about what you got. And in a class of 25, 30 young people, we got a whole the whole range. 
oh, I was old and I just went to sleep. And, you know, uh, I wish I had the wisdom of an 88 year old at the time because <laughs> I would have documented this stuff because he was still alive, right? Sounds right. innovative for sure. Uh, yeah. Anyway, significantly, these nightmares stopped. And she shared this with her family and her family was ecstatic and wanted to meet me. Mm-hmm. I said, I'll come if you'll convene a group of other parents, because I was eager to let them know what I'm doing so that they wouldn't see me as their enemy. Yeah. So in a Bel Air home, the Athey family hosted six other couples. And I went and before the evening was over, they had asked me, would I take them through this meditation exercise, which we did. And then was the initial parent training that became a component of our school. And what happened as it became a component of our school, parents came to our school and took our classes and it was the, a real community was developed. And there are other A aspects. natural progression. And so you're saying that at the end of the meditation, you die, D-I-E. Yes. I had never heard that. You know, I like to end with, at your age, what do you share with young people today to encourage them to try to uplift them because I think about that story that you told us and I think of Sidney Poitier's To Serve With Love, <laughs> that movie. Yeah. You, you know, what you have done so long in helping young people. I mean, nowadays, what would you do or what do you say to them? I think the purpose of public education ought to be articulated. This is a journey in self-discovery. You're in school to learn who you are because out of that comes a kind of a a core and a, mm-hmm. a place to perceive the external world. But it begins with you. And what happened to me out of the my college and university experience and my rejection that I experienced forced me on a journey to find out who I was. And in the process, I discovered in my perception, there was no me. I was trying to do all this stuff. I would look at billboards and dream of doing it. And my siblings and my black and brown neighbors would say, you know, you can't do that. And that was Los Angeles in, you know, in the 1940s. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you can't do that. I didn't give up my dreams, but I quit telling them because I didn't want to be ridiculed. And I'm number 10 of 11 children. There are three of us left. And I was born in, on a farm my parents owned in East Texas. The last lynching recorded in the United States happened in the county where our farm is located. East Texas, redneck country. And all of my siblings were inflicted with self-loathing, doubt, lack of aspiration because of segregation and Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. And never diagnosed. We moved to Los Angeles and without aspirations, they never took advantage of the opportunities. But I was too young to believe that I I couldn't do it. Mm. So I was the one who was the outlier and secretly admired by my siblings, but never acknowledged. And now I'm having some impact on my nieces and, and, and nephews and great nieces and ne- nephews who say to me, in, in our household, we looked at your family and admired it, but not one sibling ever acknowledged it. They're oh. dead now, but so that their children are telling me about conversations and perceptions that went on in their their household. Well, and I can say then to these young people, you see what it was that made the difference? And that path is available to you. You got to do the work. (laughs) 
Yeah. You got to do the work and have some clear understanding of what the work is so that you don't buy snake oil. And acknowledge mm -hmm. others along the way. Yes, yes. <laughs> as well as your own skills. We're very thankful for this healer joining us today, Caldwell Williams. And thank you for Ron Dozier, a local listener to KVLA Talk 1580, who referred Mr. Williams, his mentor. What a terrific suggestion, right, Bryant? Oh, yes, absolutely. Didn't you enjoy him? Very, very much. Yes, and make sure you visit our website at BeforeYouGo.tv if you have anyone that you would like to recommend to our show. That's BeforeYouGo.tv. And thank you all for listening to us here on KBLA Talk 1580. Be sure to download our Before You Go podcast from the KBLA 1580 app. And before we go, we want to remind everyone that these stories are what make a show like ours possible. So make sure you take the time to reach out and call these busy elders who continue to make such rich history. There's no time like the present. What a, what gift. a gift. 